It is my personal belief that prayer is distinctively Christian. There may be more than a few of you who sit there and say, now wait a hot minute. There are many people of many religions who pray. And oftentimes they appear to be more disciplined in prayer than most Christians we know. Muslims pray five times a day. Men face the east, kneel on a paper-thin mat, put their faces to the ground, and they pray to Allah. Jewish Orthodox individuals pray daily. Not only the great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they also pray for the peace and protection of Israel on a daily basis. There are many other Near Eastern religions who give the instruction for their followers to develop and uh, give many moments and minutes and even hours into contemplative prayer. So you may sit there and think, Pastor, how can you say that prayer is distinctively Christian? I contend that the only people on planet earth who can pray in Jesus' name are Christians. That phrase, in Jesus' name, is not an empty tagline that we put as a postscript to our prayers. It is not some mystical ritual that we add to the end of our prayers. No, we acknowledge that if we're going to stand in front of the God of the cosmos, we don't stand in our name. We stand in Jesus' name. In the days of Jesus, a name signified essence and character, power and authority. So you and I dare not stand before a holy God in the flimsy, frail, selfish sinfulness of our own names and our own lives. We make our petitions before the Lord and we pray unto him in the power, in the perfection, in the authority, in the majesty of the resurrected Christ, the Lord Jesus himself. So we say at the end of our prayer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think that prayer is distinctively Christian. Today we continue our eight-part summer sermon series entitled Storytime, Parables of Jesus. And we come to a parable on the subject of prayer. It's one of those well-spun stories of Jesus. It's a story that packs a punch. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it. Turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. I want to read verses 1 to 8 in your hearing. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke, chapter 18. I'll begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. There was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, listen 
to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. In our story, there are two main characters. There is a villain and a victim. The villain is an unjust judge. Jesus said of him that he neither feared God nor cared about men. Apparently, he was the worst of sinners. Elsewhere, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on the greatest two commandments. The first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Apparently, this judge was the worst sinner in the world because he did not fear God, nor did he care about men. He had broken not just the first commandment, but also the second commandment. This man was self-absorbed. If you had to stand before this judge, you only had one of three options. If you had enough money, you might be able to bribe him. If you had enough influence, you might be able to intimidate him. But if you didn't have cash or clout, the third option was the only option left for you. You would have to plea for his mercy. This is when we're introduced to the second character of our story. She is the victim. Jesus identifies her as a widow. In those days, uh, widows were easy targets of victimization. They really had no rights and privileges in society. It is why I think that the Lord says in a place like Deuteronomy chapter 10 that God defends the cause of the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. I think it's also true that that's the reason why God says in a place like Deuteronomy chapter 27, cursed is the man who withholds justice from a widow. Apparently, this unjust judge had never read Deuteronomy. Apparently, he had never been to Sunday school. Apparently, he had never paid attention in the synagogue. No, this unjust judge, he did not fear God, and he did not care about men. But the widow, she had no cash. She had no clout. The only thing she could do was she could plea for his mercy. The weapon in her arsenal was persistence. And so she pleaded for mercy. She asked that judge, grant me justice against my adversary. We're not told what the enemy was doing against her. We're not told what the injustice was. Nobody doubts it. Nobody debates it. Everybody understands that this widow, she's being brutally treated by her adversary. And she is persistent. That's the only weapon in her arsenal. So this woman comes to this judge time and time and time again. I can imagine that she was first at the courthouse early in the morning. 
When she walked in and this judge saw her, he simply said, next case, please. This woman probably intentionally made her way into the marketplace at high noon. She knew the eating habits of this unjust judge. She knew which place he went to go get lunch. And when he sat down to lunch, there she was. Can you please help me against my adversary? When he judged the last case on his docket, he was about to leave the courtroom, courthouse, go to his house and just retire for the evening. Guess who was waiting on him at the foot of the steps? This woman, she was saying, grant me justice against my adversary. Eventually, Jesus said that even though this man refused to give her justice, eventually he said, you know, even though I do not fear God, I don't even care about men. Yet because this, this, this widow, she keeps bothering me. The word bother means pester. She was pestering the stew out of this man. Because she keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice or eventually... She'll just wear me out with her coming. That last phrase is extremely picturesque. She will wear me out with her coming. That phrase, wear me out, literally is translated, give me a black eye. What he's saying is either one of two scenarios. Either this woman is going to cause me to lose so much sleep that I'm going to have dark circles develop around my eyes or... He thinks this woman is going to get so frustrated that this sweet little old lady is going to sock me one and give me a black eye. Regardless, I'll make sure she gets justice because eventually she'll just wear me out with her coming. So the unjust judge eventually gave her justice. Eventually she wore him down. So that he had to answer. This is a parable. By now you know that a parable is a compound Greek word, para and balo. Para means alongside, balo means to throw. So a parable is a story that's thrown alongside real life. It's a fictitious story, but it has a ring of reality to it. It lines up so much with reality that the people of Jesus' day could see this actually happening. This particular parable is quite unique. Most of the parables of Jesus are draped in obscurity. Jesus left it to the listener to connect all the dots to understand the meaning of what the Messiah was stating. But in this parable, it's unique for a couple of reasons. For starters... Luke gives us the meaning of the parable right at the beginning. Jesus told the story, according to verse 1, to tell his disciples they should always pray and never give up. This is a story about prayer. This is a story about how God's disciples, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to pray and never give up on prayer. This is a story that tells us we ought to pray no matter what. We ought to pray no matter the circumstance. We ought to pray no matter the situation. We ought to pray no matter the grievance of the injustice. We ought to pray regardless of what the circumstances are in our culture or in our country. We ought to pray and never give up on praying. 
The point of the story is that we ought to pray. It's also unique because uh, this, is, this is a parable of contrast, not a parable of comparison. Most of the time when Jesus tells a story, when he uh, tells us a parable, he's giving us a parable of comparison. Many times he's comparing an attribute or a characteristic of God to the, one of the main players in the story. For example, the very last parable that you and I talked about was that parable that is so brilliantly told in Luke chapter 15. And the third portrait of that parable is the story of the prodigal son. And that is a story of comparison. For Jesus is comparing that earthly father in Luke 15 to our heavenly father. That the earthly father was looking for his lost sons. That the one who asked for the father to divide his inheritance, he liquidized his assets. He went off to the far country. There he, he wasted his living and wild living with prostitutes. Eventually he came to his senses and he came back to the family farm. But while he was still a long way off, this loving father was looking for him. And when he saw him. He ran to his son. He threw all of the societal norms to the wind. He ran to his son. He lavished love upon him. He said, bring out a robe and a ring and sandals. Kill the fattened calf. We've got to celebrate because the son of mine was lost and he's found. He was dead and he's alive again. And this loving father who lavishes love not only ran to the younger son, but also ran to his older son as well. And he pleaded with him saying, your brother is now found. We had to celebrate for he was lost and is found. He was dead and is alive again. The point of the parable is clear. The imagery is crystal clear that this father in Luke 15 is being compared to our great father in heaven. And God the father lavishes love upon his children, regardless of whether you're the older brother or the younger brother, regardless of whether you're religious or a reprobate. God loves humanity. And so he lavishes love, and he cares compassionately for people. So Luke 15 is a parable of comparison. But three chapters later, here we are in Luke 18. This is not a parable of comparison. This is a parable of contrast. The way you know that is because Jesus focuses the attention of the reader. He focuses the attention of his disciples like a laser point. And he said, did you hear what the unjust judge said? The unjust judge who said, I don't fear God and I don't care about men, yet I'll, I'll, I'll see that this woman gets justice because eventually she'll just wear me out with her coming and she'll give me a black eye. Jesus said, did you hear what the unjust judge says? He's not comparing God to the unjust judge. He's contrasting God to the unjust judge. If that's how the unjust judge operates, think how much more mercy will be given from our Father in heaven. For he is the righteous judge. This is not a parable of comparison. It's a parable of contrast. When you get to the end of our passage, Jesus asks three questions. He tells the story, and then he asks three questions to his disciples. The first question, will not God bring about justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? 
Now, the implied answer to that first question is yes. Will not God bring about justice? Yes, he will. He's not an unjust judge. He's a very righteous, benevolent, kind judge. He will make sure that we get justice. Will not God bring about justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Our God in heaven demonstrates preferential treatment to his children. Those who pray to him in Jesus' name are called chosen ones. All people are creations of God. Only those who know God personally through Jesus Christ are children of God. So the children of God, the chosen ones of God, they cry out to him day and night. One of the marks of being a child of God, one of the attributes of being a chosen one of the Lord is that prayer is, is part and parcel with your human condition. I mean, prayer, just as, just as air is to breathing, so prayer is to your life. You've got to have it. If you don't breathe, you die. If you don't pray, you die. Because you've got to pray. You've got to cry out to him. When I hear that phrase of crying out, I'm reminded of Exodus chapter 3. It's there where we're told the story that Moses is on the backside of Mount Horeb. He's minding his own business. He's watching the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. And all of a sudden he saw a bush that was on fire but not being consumed. He goes to it and God speaks to him from that bush. And the Lord said, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out and I'm concerned about them so go to Pharaoh and say let my people go did you hear that phrase I've heard them crying out I don't know about you but when you think about prayer I'm sure that there are times you think well prayer is an opportunity for us to praise God and it is and prayer is an opportunity for us to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and it is and you think, well, prayer's a time to seek God's will for my life. And it is. But prayer is also a time for you to cry out to God day and night. I mean, at the heart of prayer is God's desire for you to cry out to him. Regardless of the time of day. Whether it's daytime, whether it's nighttime, whether things are going well or things are going poorly, whether you're awake or asleep, you can cry out to him anytime. He welcomes when his chosen ones cry out to him. He's not the unjust judge. You're not going to have to wear him down. No, he's the just judge, and he welcomes your prayers. And you, as children of, of the Lord, you as followers of Jesus Christ, you are the chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. This morning I wonder, is there anything for which you need to cry out to the Lord? Do you need to cry out for a health concern? Do you need to cry out for your marriage? Do you need to cry out for your family? Do you need to cry out for your son or for your daughter? Do you need to cry out for your prodigal? Do you need to cry out for your grandchildren? Do you need to cry out for an employment difficulty? Do you need to cry out 
for your country? Do you need to cry out for your culture? Do you need to cry out for a generation that's coming up behind you? Do you need to cry out for anything and everything? What do you need to cry out for? In this story, Jesus tells us, he invites us, he implores us to cry out to God day and night. For will not God bring about justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? And the answer is yes. Yes, he will. So Jesus tells the story, and Luke tells us why he tells the story. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. You keep on praying. The arsenal of, of your weaponry is prayer. And you can be persistent in prayer, not to wear God down, but simply to tell your benevolent, kind, righteous judge the heart's desire in your life. Jesus asked a second question, will he keep putting them off? The implied answer is no. God is not the unjust judge. He's the opposite of that. The unjust judge kept putting this widow off. Will God keep putting you off? And Jesus says, he will see that you get justice and quickly. Not only... Is our God the exact opposite of the unjust judge? He will not keep putting you off. But Jesus adds a statement, doesn't he? He'll make sure you get justice and quickly. It's at that moment that some of you may want to push back just a little bit against the story. You may want to push back against the text ever so respectfully, right? I mean, no disrespect to Jesus, but you think to yourself, uh, Jesus I've been praying for some stuff for a mighty long time, and God hasn't moved quickly. Been praying for weeks, been praying for months, been praying for years, and God hasn't moved. God hasn't worked. The situation hasn't changed. Here, Jesus says, he'll make sure, God will make sure that you get justice and you get it quickly. But you think to yourself, wait a minute. I don't think God's moving quickly at all. Because the problem that keeps me up at night, the worry that is constantly on my mind and in my heart, it's not changing. In fact, if anything, the scenario's getting worse, not better. I wish God would act quickly. But when it comes to my injustice, you may say, when it comes to my hurt, my suffering, God has not moved quickly at all. Beloved, let me remind you that I came this morning just to tell you that our God orchestrates all the events of our lives in perfect tempo. Our God orchestrates the events of our lives in perfect tempo. Let me give you an example from the Old Testament. For years and years, centuries in fact, the people had yearned for the Messiah. They wanted the Messiah to come, the anointed one, the Christ. The prophets foretold it. They said that the Messiah would come. They called people to repent and to turn unto God. The last prophet to speak was a guy by the name of Malachi. He lived some 400 years before the coming of Christ. The last prophet to say, thus saith the Lord, was Malachi. For 400 years, there was divine silence. For 400 years, 
the God who had spoke imposed a gag order on himself. He was the silent savior. He did not say anything for 400 years. That's a mighty long time. That's longer than this experiment called the United States of America. We've been around 247 years. For 400 years in Israel's history, God was silent. What do you do with a silent God? What do you do when you're asking and pleading for God to do something and say something and move here and move there and he doesn't, he doesn't utter a word? He's completely and utterly silent. And then we're told, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. In a span of 33 years, the gospel was completed. In a span of a little more than three decades, God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl, born in a Bethlehem barn, born in a rustic cave. He lived a perfect life, had a three-year ministry, three years, keep in mind, three-year ministry where he ushered in the kingdom of God. He lived a perfect life, did mighty miracles in the name of God. At the end of that three-year ministry, Lord Jesus was handed over to religious rulers. They then in turn gave him to the Roman authorities. They crucified him on Calvary's hill. He died uh, there on Golgotha. He was stretched wide to the point that he declared to Telestai, it is is finished. What's finished? All the longing, all the yearning, all the hope of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus. All of his work is completely done. He came and got her done. Jesus came and he died on the cross. He declared it is finished. They took his dead body off the cross, placed him into a borrowed grave, rolled a stone in front of it. And on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. What I'm trying to tell you is for hundreds and hundreds of years, people were waiting for God to move quickly and he moved quickly in the fullness of time in a span of 33 years the gospel was completed God moves at his tempo and when he does move he moves quickly I can tell you from personal experience just my little slice of life there have been let's say a handful of times over the last 27 years of marriage that Jane Ellen and I have been driven to our knees in prayer, asking God for help, pleading with him for mercy, asking for God to intervene. And weeks and months and months would pass and there was no mighty movement of God until there was a mighty movement of God. God did nothing until God did something. God didn't move until God moved. God didn't speak until he spoke. And God, when he moves, he moves quickly. That's what I'm trying to tell you. When he moves, he moves quickly. When he moves, you can't slow him down. When he moves, you can't stop him. When he moves, you just got to jump on the train and say, take me home, Jesus. Because when he moves, he moves quickly. There may be moments when you think to yourself, I've been praying for weeks and months and years and God hasn't 
done anything yet. Friend, what Jesus is telling us is that God moves and he orchestrates our life in perfect tempo so that when he brings justice, he brings it quickly. So don't ever give up on prayer. God hasn't forgotten you. He knows who you are, he knows where you are, and he knows how you are. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows the injustice that you're seeking justice. He knows the difficulty that you're seeking for him to give a divine answer to the dilemma. Jesus knows. And God is telling us, don't you give up on prayer. Because will God keep putting you off? The answer is no. He'll make sure you get justice. And he'll do it quickly. And, of course, quickly is on his timetable. Because when he moves, he moves quickly. Have you ever noticed that God can do a lot of stuff in a matter of seconds? You've been praying for something for many, many minutes, months and years. You've been praying and praying. But when God decides to move, he moves quickly. He can accomplish in a few seconds what it would take you a few lifetimes to accomplish. So once again, Jesus tells this story to say, don't you give up on prayer. You keep praying and don't give up on it. In verse 8, uh, Jesus asks the third and final question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, Will he find faith on the earth? To pray in Jesus' name requires great faith. Stop and think about it. You're asking God to do something. But you don't know how he's going to answer. You don't know when he's going to answer. And yet you keep on praying. It takes great faith to pray like that. You don't see the answer. You don't know the answer. You don't know when God is going to move. You know that when he starts to move, he's going to move quickly. But it takes great faith. Say, God, I don't know when you're going to do it. I don't know how you're going to do it. I just believe you're going to do it somehow, some way, sometime. It takes great faith to pray in Jesus' name. When the Son of Man comes, will he find that kind of faith on the earth? When the Son of Man comes, that's a probably a reference to the second coming of Christ, which is the context of our story because in Luke 17, Jesus is talking about the second coming of the Son of Man. He says it'll be like uh, lightning that flashes across the sky. Lightning that flashes is spontaneous and it's unmistakable, right? I mean, last night we were driving and we saw lightning strike. Spontaneous. Unmistakable. Jesus went on to say, it'll be like in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. In the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and being married all the way up until Noah and his family went into the ark and God shut the door. And as soon as the door was shut, rain fell upon the earth. It was spontaneous, unmistakable. Such is the case in the days of Lot. It wasn't until Lot and his family left the geographical jurisdiction of that sinful cities called Sodom and Gomorrah 
And as soon as they did that, sulfur was raining down upon those cities. Up until that day, they, up until that moment, they were eating and drinking, they were building and buying. But as soon as Lot and his family walked out, God rained down sulfur. It was spontaneous. It was unmistakable. When the Son of Man comes, it will equally be spontaneous. It will be unmistakable. When he comes, will he find you still believing? Will he find you still trusting? Will he find you still praying? Will he find you still obeying? When he comes, you don't know when he's coming. You just know he's coming. I mean, there's coming a day when he's going to peel back the eastern sky. There's coming a day when he will mount his white horse. There's coming a day when he will descend. There's coming a day when he will rescue and rapture the church. There's coming a day when the Son of Man will return. And when he comes, will he find you still holding on to faith? What's interesting is that the first question implies a positive response. The second question implies a negative response. The first question, will not God bring about justice? Absolutely yes. Will he keep putting off his children? Absolutely no. Third question. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You can answer that question. You're invited into this story. When the Son of Man comes for you, will he still find you holding on to faith? Will he still find you praying in Jesus' name? Will he still find you believing and trusting and obeying? Will he still find faith on the earth? It is no accident that the very following story to this one is another one of those well-spun stories of Jesus where Jesus said two men went up to a temple to pray. One was the Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. Pharisee prayed about himself or to himself. He said, Father, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like robbers or evildoers or even like this tax collector here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who stood in the corner, looking down at the floor, could not even lift his head to the heavens. He just beat his chest, offered a seven-word prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said that man, not the Pharisee, went home justified before the Lord. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, friend, when Jesus comes back, will he find you? praying. When Jesus comes back, will he find you with faith? Jesus is telling us the one thing that stops Jesus in his tracks is a request for mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a seven-word prayer. And whenever anybody asks for mercy in the Gospels, it always calls Jesus to stop. He's walking from point A to point B, he hears a cry for mercy, he stops, and he turns, and he ministers. When Jesus comes back, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find people that are so desperately dependent upon him that they're crying out for mercy? I wonder this morning, do you ask the Messiah for mercy? Mercy which is fresh each new morning. Do you ask him for a fresh dose of mercy today? Mercy to help you in your heart, in your home, in your marriage, in your family, at your work, in this church, in this country, in this culture, in these generations. Do you ask for mercy? Jesus tells us this parable stating 
We should always pray and never give up on prayer. And when we pray, ask for mercy. I wonder this morning, is there anybody in need of God's divine mercy? If you are, I want you to know that God is here. And you can cry out to him. You can do it from your seat. That's perfectly fine. You can do it here at the front. That's perfectly fine too. Your prayers are not more powerful down here, but sometimes when you change your position, your posture, it changes you as you desperately call out to him. And there may be some people who need to come today to fill this altar and just pray. And maybe you are praying for yourself or your family. Maybe you're praying for a crisis in in, in, uh, in your bank account. Maybe, maybe you're, you're praying for fear of the future, fear that you're, you're never going to succeed or fear that you're never going to find Mr. Right or, or fear of what's coming down the pike. Maybe you're just fearful and you're stressed out all the time and you just need to ask God for mercy. Maybe it's a health concern. Maybe it's a family crisis. Whatever it is, maybe you're praying for this country, this country that we love so much. Maybe you're praying for this culture that seems so wayward. Maybe you're praying for your generation or the generations behind you you and just asking God please have your favor rest upon us be merciful to us today we pray and we never give up on praying and we simply ask the Messiah Lord have mercy on me a sinner Heavenly Father we bow before you we give you this moment of invitation we ask for mercy and help in our time of need So, Lord, have mercy on us. We're your chosen ones. We're crying out to you. We're depending upon you. We're asking for your help. We pray that you will be merciful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.